I told you guys last Sunday and a couple we uh, weekends ago, reminded you that today is Q&A. And um, next Sunday, we are going to start the book of Ephesians, Lord willing. I'll do, maybe I'll cover um, verses 1 and 2, or a big, a big overview of the book of Ephesians. So if you want to get ready for that, you can start reading the book of Ephesians. Uh, only six chapters. Only 155 verses, it takes me 18 minutes to read in one sitting. And for those of you who have looked up, especially in January or before January, if you guys have looked up, you know, Bible reading plans, right? And maybe you, uh, maybe you encountered uh, the way Pastor John MacArthur uh, recommends Bible reading. What he does is that he would take one, one letter from the New Testament, it'd be harder for Old Testament unless it's the Minor Prophets, but he would take one letter, one book from the New Testament, and he would read that in one sitting every day for one month. And he would say, after doing that, I know everything about Ephesians. I know everything about First John. Um, so if you guys want to get ready for, for our study for the book of Ephesians, try that. Only six chapters, only 155 verses, a lot smaller than the books that you read for school. Probably around the same length of the text messages that you send and <laughs> read in one day. Okay, 18 minutes for me, maybe less for you or maybe more. Um, you just read it in one sitting, just like, you know, just like how they received it back then, a letter. They would read the whole thing or listen to the whole thing read. Uh, give it one month or a couple of months, you, you'll know. You'll know the the main points of Ephesians. So before we do that, next Sunday, today is Bible Q&A. As you guys know, we do this every three months. Uh, it's good for you. It's good for me. It's good for you because I, uh, I, get to, I get to hear what you guys have been thinking about, the questions that you may be asking yourself or asking others. And it's good for me because it gets me out of whatever we're studying and it and it stretches me, makes me study things that, that I normally wouldn't study unless you ask or unless I ask. So I hope that uh, it'll be a, a benefit to all of us this morning. Uh, now, you know, the girls, uh, the girls asked me earlier, what questions do you have? What, how many? And I said, actually, I, I don't know because we, you know, we have big questions and maybe we'll get through four of them, maybe. Um, because you guys sent me really, really big questions. So if you have a follow-up question, unless, unless, you think it, unless you think that I was really unclear or unless you think that you really need to ask a follow-up question, um, do it. If not, you know, do, uh, do it later. So here's the first question. Is there ever a situation in which it is okay to lie? And if so, what? Okay, this question is, is an annual question. You know, it usually comes up during um, during camp. Uh, that's why I like to bring guest speakers for camp so that they would handle the question. Um, but now I'm being asked personally. So, is there ever a situation in which it is okay to lie? So what? Well, before I give you my answer, just so you know, lots of Christians um, differ on this issue. Okay, even some of our, our pastors here, okay, may take different views. A lot of my, my friends, pastors from other churches, take differing views also. So 
when I give you my answer, I don't want you to misinterpret me, misunderstand me, and say, oh, Pastor Roy said it, so it must be the, the right answer. Or Pastor Roy said it, so, so I need to take his view. No. Okay? When you guys have questions, especially with things that are a little bit more difficult, okay, that, the Bible, uh, that the Bible does address, but it seems like there's some contradictions, make sure you do your own study and after you do your study, if you land on a view, make sure that you're convinced on your own, like Paul says in Romans. Okay, so I've done my study. I'm convinced on my own, but I'm not going to tell you, hey, the other guys, they're wrong. You know, you're wrong. Or uh, I've done the study myself, so all you have to do is copy me. I'm not saying that. Okay, do your own study. Be convinced on your own. Okay, and then when you ask for your view, you give it softly and gently, but you still have to tell them what your view is and why you take that view. Does that make sense? Okay, so here's my answer. After, after uh, you know, a few years now, thinking about this question that, that pops up often and looking at passages in the Bible online, it seems to me, it seems to me, <laughs> and it seems, okay? It seems to me, um, that it is not okay to lie, except when you want to protect human life. Okay? It would be like a question on, on a divorce. We know that the Bible says divorce is bad. Even God says, I hate divorce, right? So divorce is not okay, except, and then you have two exceptions for divorce. Um, that's, that's, Let's uh, look at another illustration. The government, right? We know that the Bible says, obey, submit, line yourself up under the government. But then we have other passages that say, we must obey God rather than men. Okay, like in Acts and like Daniel and his friends. So that's, that's kind of where I put lying in that category, okay? So it's never okay, it's not okay unless Okay, with one exception, when you want to protect human life. So, there are many passages that tell us that it's not okay to lie. Proverbs six seventeen, right? There are six things that God hates, seven abomination to Him. And one of those things is a lying tongue. So, God hates lying. Ephesians four twenty five, right? Paul says, put aside falsehood. Put those things aside. That's not, that's not Christian. What you need to put on, what's Christian, is to speak truth to one another. So, you got... Proverbs 6, Ephesians 4, and also James 5, 12. James 5, 12. Let your yes be what? Yes, and your no be no. That means that means you can't you can't lie about what you say. You need to be committed to what you say. So we have at least those three passages that tell us that it's not okay to lie. But at the same time, there are other passages that tell us stories, okay, not commands, okay? Not prescriptions. Stories of God-fearing people, okay, not bad people, not, not evil people, God-fearing people who lie to protect human life. Okay, there are, there are a few. I'll just give you one. Go to Exodus chapter 1. Okay, all the way to the front, Genesis, Exodus. chapter 1, okay, follows, I read verses 15 through 21. 
I'll just read it real quick and make a couple comments, okay? Verse 13, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. Probably heard this story before. One of whom was named Shipra, and the other was named Pua. And he said, so the king of Egypt said, When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth, then see them upon the birth stool. If it's a, if it's a son, then you shall put him to death. Kill him. Okay, if it's a baby boy, kill him. But if it's a baby girl, a daughter, then let her live. She shall live. But the midwife, but the midwives, what? Feared God. And did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Hey, why have you done this thing? What thing? You let the boys live. The midwife said to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. Now, there's a lot of debate there saying that is, that's, that's a half truth and half lie. It's still, there's still some lie there. Verse 20, So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. So, again, the king of Egypt, right, commands them, kill the baby boys, but what did they do? They refused, and when they were summoned by the king, asked by the king, they lied about it. Now, notice their reason for lying. They didn't lie because they feared Pharaoh. Okay, sometimes when we lie, we lie because we fear the other person. We fear being caught. We fear the consequences. But notice here, Moses, the one telling the story, saying they, they lied not because they feared Pharaoh, but they feared God. Twice, twice they were described as God-fearing women. That's, that's a very interesting comment, right? It means that they believed that what would honor God in the situation. Okay, they believed because they feared God, not Pharaoh. They believed in the moment that what would honor God the most is to protect life. That's why they did what they did. And then notice also that God um, blessed them. God, it, it says that, that um, God was good to the midwives. And because of his goodness, he established households for them. Now, I'm not taking that too far and saying, yeah, if you lie to protect human life, that God will bless you. I'm just saying that, that you don't see punishment for the midwives for doing what they did. I think, I think it's because they wanted to protect human life. Okay, And they were God-fearing midwives, God-fearing people. And it's not because they feared what Pharaoh would do to them, but because they feared God, which showed, proof, proved itself in protecting his own people, the Israelites, God's own chosen people. You realize that, right? That if, if all of the boys were killed, the Israelites, God's chosen people, would go what? Extinct. Okay? So you can tell that God loved and cared and protected his own people. So people who would who would protect that, um, he would be good to them and show favor to them. Uh, Rahab and Joshua 2 is a similar story. Okay? Um, in chapter 2 is the lie. We don't have to go there. But then in chapter 6, verse 25, God's favor. Okay, so chapter 2 in Joshua 2, they lied. I mean, uh, uh, Rahab lied. And then fast forward to chapter 6, she receives a blessing from God. 
Again, no, I'm not saying that it's from lying, but it's from protecting human life. Okay, so if I were to take this principle today, if the government limits how many kids uh, we can have, right? So let's say tomorrow they say, hey, there's a new law, only, only three kids. And as you guys know, we have five. We have a bunch of kids. <laughs> and then, and then they, they say, okay, if you have more than three, we would have to... Uh, we would have to sell them to slavery or kill them, right? And then they, they come over and they knock. Hey, we're just checking, you know, so we're going to make sure you only have three kids. I believe, personally, that as a father, God has given me the responsibility to protect human life. Therefore, I would lie about it. Uh, people who, who take the other view... You give them, you know, the, the follow-up question is usually that. Well, you know, what happens when, you know, the government comes to your door and, and they'll kill your family if you, uh, whatever, you know. And they'll say, and those people who take the other view will say, I won't lie about it. I don't know. You know? I don't know. I'm, again, that, that, that experience doesn't, it is not the authority that you should take this view. Um... But that would be a hard situation to be in. So, so that's my soft answer. I've studied it. I am convinced on my own. I'm not saying the other view is wrong. Um, I'm not saying that you guys should take my view. You do your own study. Look up all the passages that say it's never okay to lie, but don't ignore the other stories, okay, that talk about God-fearing people who lie to protect human life. I think, I think that's the only exception. Okay. I think that's the only exception. So, um, I think you will find yourself. I think we will find ourselves, uh, 99.9% .9 of the time, um, saying it's not okay to lie, right? Because it's rare, especially today, it's rare uh, to be in a situation that that uh, we're trying to protect human life. Okay. Uh, second question, how can I be convinced that anxiety is a sin? And what are some passages? Good question. Now, um, here's my answer. It depends on two things. Okay, it depends on two things. I, you know, when somebody asked, uh, you know, two weeks ago, somebody asked me, hey, can, can I meet with you because I'm struggling with, it, with anxiety? Um, I didn't, I didn't. It would be it, it would be unfair and unloving to assume that he's in sin. That when I meet with him, I'm just going to correct it. Okay, it really depends on a couple of things. Number one, it depends on what you mean when you say anxiety. Okay, uh, some people get panic attacks, and 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 sometimes, not always, sometimes they don't know what's causing them to have that panic attack. You know, they, if their, their heart rate goes up, you know, they start breathing heavily, you know, sweaty palms, all those things. And sometimes they don't know. I'm, I'm in no position to say, ah, you're sinning. You just got to repent of that. Okay? It really depends. Okay, that's the first question I ask. What do you mean when you say anxiety? Uh, that's important to know because the world, okay, that we live in, especially once you get into psychology, psychiatry, they have a different definition of anxiety. Okay? They have a different view and definition of anxiety. But if you, if, you, if you really want to know what the Bible says about anxiety, the Bible defines it uh, pretty generally, but also 
Um, specifically, anxiety in the Bible simply means a feeling of apprehension or distress because of a possible danger in view. Okay? A feeling of apprehension or distress because of a possible danger in view. So when someone is anxious because of a possible danger in view, I want to ask them, okay, is that really a possible danger in view? Okay, let's say I'm sleeping at night, right? One o'clock in the morning, boom, 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 right? Which happened, I don't know how many years ago. Our, our, I left my garage, our garage open, so this was a Peoria police. He's like, boom, 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 boom. So we wake up, right? And guess what? I'm worried, I'm anxious, right? If you guys know the fight or flight system in your nervous system, now I'm breathing heavy, the heart rate's up, I'm, I'm ready to go, you know? And I got kids and family to protect. Uh, do I go? Do I go outside around? You know? Do, do I open the door? Right? It's one o'clock in the morning, so I open the door, and there's a police officer with a flashlight in my in my eyes. Right? So, so obviously he wasn't a possible danger. But when I got woken up, the feeling of apprehension uh, thought uh, assumed that there was a possible danger. Okay, so I can understand that. Okay. Um, for example, you're, you're in high school, okay? For example, I was in high school, okay? I was in high school, uh, middle school. Eighth, eighth grade is middle school, right? Eighth grade is middle, yeah. Eighth grade, middle school, uh, 2000, year 2000. Uh, we first, uh, we just got here from the Philippines, okay? So I already knew English, but I had a thick accent, right? And I, and I started going to school and I was anxious, okay? of a possible danger. What are these kids going to think of me? I look different, I talk different. What are they going to think of me? What are they gonna say? I think they're gonna say this. Oh, and then I think they're gonna do this. Oh man, I'm not going to school. One day I skip class, right? So in that scenario, that, that's sinful. Okay, because anxiety in that scenario is uh, is assuming that that there's actually going uh, that there's a danger that's going to happen when really there's no possibility. Right. The other scenario, yes, it makes sense. You would feel some apprehension. Right. Um, so that's what I, that's the first thing I ask. Okay, what do you mean when you are anxious? Are you anxious for things that are not going to happen? You know, I call them what ifs and the unknowns. Okay, if you're anxious about those things, that's not good. Because they're just what ifs and unknowns. What if that kid, you know, makes fun of my accent? What if that girl says I look like this? That's just what ifs and unknowns. I have no idea. So I can't be anxious. But if it's legitimate danger, legitimate threat, then I can understand why someone would feel some apprehension, some concern. Okay, so first, what do you mean when you say you're anxious? Second, it depends on what you do when you're anxious. Okay, because you may have legitimate concern, okay, pounding on the door one o'clock a.m., or you may have illegitimate concern, you know, what are my classmates going to think of me? Uh, wherever you are, you still need to think about what you do with your anxiety because you can sin if you don't do 
what the Bible tells you to do. So here's what here's what you need to do. Number one, you put your hope in God. When you're anxious, you put your hope in God. You don't put your hope in in um, in a different circumstance. You don't put your hope in you know better friends. You don't put your hope in uh, more money. You don't put your hope in whatever. You put your hope in God. Okay. There was a very anxious man in Psalm 42. Very anxious. You know, he wrote a song about his anxiety, and you can tell that he was very anxious. And then two times in verse 5 and verse 11, in the beginning and towards the end, he said, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Which is another word translated in the Old Testament. Why are you concerned? Why are you in angst? Why are you so anxious, O my soul? So he's talking to himself. Okay, like Lloyd-Jones said in our book, Humility. You know, remember C.J. Mahaney quoted Lloyd-Jones? And, and Lloyd-Jones said, you know, our problem is we listen to ourselves too much. We should be talking to ourselves too much. So Psalm 42 says, he's talking to himself, why are you downcast on my soul? And then here's his answer. Here's his counsel to his own soul. Put your hope in who? God. Your circumstance may not change. People around you may not change. That threat may be very likely to happen, but you need to put your hope in God. So you do that. And then second, second thing that you do, get busy serving God. Okay, when we're anxious, okay, especially when you see a, a specialist, sometimes, a lot of times, they'll say, you just got to focus on you. You know, you got to stop doing all those things. You just focus on you, self-esteem, love yourself, whatever. Right? The Bible says different. Okay, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is teaching on anxiety. Right? And then he gets to the end. He said, do not be anxious. Do not worry. So I don't want you to be doing that. And Jesus said, here's what I want you to be doing. Seek first the kingdom of God. Now, that's interesting. You know, you, you're, you're, I was thinking about that. Okay, why would he say... Stop being worried. Stop doing something. Well, I think there's a there's a correlation there. When we're anxious, we, we tend to just hit, you know, delete button or sleep button, right? And just just relax and it's all about ourselves rather than getting to work. And Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying, don't 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 be worried. Don't be anxious. I still want you to do the things that I've given you to do. So, if you're anxious, okay, and God God said you need to go to school, guess what? You need to go to school. Okay? If your friend is uh, a difficult friend and that makes you anxious, guess what? The Bible says you still need to pour into that friend's life. You do it. And when you're anxious because mom and dad, you know, are arguing or whatever, guess what? The Bible says you still need to honor and obey your parents. There are God-given responsibilities. Just because you're anxious, it, you don't get a free pass and say, oh, I just need to focus on myself. Okay? When you're anxious, it is good to take the focus off yourself and get busy with your God-given responsibilities because that actually helps you with your anxiety. So... Put your hope in God. Get busy serving God. Okay, Psalm 42, Matthew 6, and lastly, 1 Peter 5, cast your anxieties on God. Anxious people sometimes tend to just want to take, take care of their own anxieties on their own. Oh, if I just do this, if I just get on this medication, if I just change this right here, and if I stop doing this, okay, then, I'll, I, then I'll, I can really take care of whatever's making me worry. Now, you may do that. 
But 1 Peter 5, verse 7 says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Okay, that's the command. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. How do we do that? How do you humble your hand? Uh, you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God by what? Casting what? Some of your anxieties, all of your anxieties on Him. Why would you do that? Peter says because God cares for you. Main command: humble yourself, which implies that if you're anxious. There's a possibility that you're being what? Proud, because you just want to take care of everything on your own. So Peter says, humble yourself. How do you do it? Cast your anxieties on him. Why would you do that? Because he cares for you. The tendency is for ourselves to just care about ourselves. And Peter's saying, that's pride. God, allow God to take care of you. So, so if I'm anxious, okay, but I'm hoping in God, I'm busy serving Him, and I'm casting my anxieties on Him, then I'm fine. I don't think I'm sinning in the moment. Okay? But if I'm anxious, and I'm hoping in a change of circumstance, if I'm neglecting my responsibilities because I'm just too anxious, and if I'm trying to take care of my own anxieties on my own, then I'm not fine. I would be sinning. Okay? So... So that's how I would approach that. I, I wouldn't be too quick to say, ah, anxiety is sin. You're anxious? Okay, you're in sin. I want to know, okay, what do you mean when you say anxiety? And what do you do when, when you're anxious? Depending on what you say about your anxiety, you, you're, you can sin or not. And, how, and however you take care of them or, or handle them, you can also be sinning in it. Third question, what are some reasons we should stay away from dating as a teenager? Sorry, we're out of time. <laughs> what are some reasons we should stay away from dating as a teenager? Now, some of you may say, ew, right? Um, but, you know, you blink and you wake up one day and you'll find yourself in this situation. And you need to be prepared. Okay? You need to be prepared. And then uh, there's a comment here that says, it's interesting when unbelievers at school are dating. Yeah, yeah, very, I mean, in church too, it's interesting when, <laughs> when people are dating. <laughs> okay, it's interesting all, all, all over. Um, so when I, get at, when I get asked by a teenager or a parent of a teenager, which happens some, uh, sometimes, if it's wise to date in the teen years, uh, my answer is almost always no. Okay? Almost always, no, it is not wise. Um, I have three reasons. Okay, these are my reasons. You have to study the Bible on your own, be convinced on your own, and make sure that you actually apply what you have been convinced of from Scripture. Okay, it, it is it is sad, students, when when you know, a young person starts smoking or starts drinking or start playing this video game or start going to this place or start dating. And then I ask them, why do you do what you do? Give me motives, motives of the heart. And they can't answer. They say, well, you know, I, the Bible says uh, drunkenness is sin. 
you know, it's like a classic, well, drunkenness is sin, so I, I'm okay to drink. And I ask them, number one, where is that in the Bible? They do not know. Where does it say in the Bible that drunkenness is sin? They do not know. And I ask them, have you looked at all of the passages that talk about um, uh, drinking, wine, and strong drink? Have you looked at those three? They don't know. And yet, they've already been convinced in their mind, therefore they're already practicing what they're practicing. It's the same for everything, students. You want to talk about dating? Look at the Bible. Be convinced on your own, and then apply it. Okay, so, my personal three reasons. First, teena first teenagers usually don't think um, of dating with a biblical perspective. Okay, now I know the Bible doesn't mention dating uh, specifically, but we can look at a lot of passages that, that talk about relationships. Okay? That talk about relationships. The, there's a lot of passages that talk about the relationship of friendship and the relationship of marriage. You're not going to see um, specific passages that talk about the transitional side. Okay? Number one, you're not going to see passages that talk about what the world calls today recreational dating. Okay? That's off the table. If you believe that, you're in great danger. Okay? But even biblically speaking, you have passages talk about the relationship amongst friends and the relationship among, um, between husband and wife. And, and you kind of have to look at passages how that transition happens. Alright? And we may call that courting, we may call that dating, but you have to look at those passages that will hopefully uh, help you think about, about dating, shape your, shape your thinking about dating. So, I've defined dating in this way, okay? After looking at passages about friendships, relationships, and marriage relationships, and by implication what has to happen in the transition, and that, that in-between dating or courting or whatever, uh, I've defined dating this way. Dating is the testing phase, okay? That in-between, that transition phase from going from a friend to a spouse, okay? Dating is, dating is the testing phase of a friendship if the characters of both people, characters, not looks, yes, you have to be attracted to the person, but character matters, right? Dating is the testing phase of a friendship if the characters of both people, listen to this, are ready. Ready for what? Are ready to take on the roles and the responsibilities of marriage. Okay, you're not, you're not going to see that in a chapter in the verse, but after looking at passages about friendships, how tight that is, how important that is, and passages about marriage, okay, how unique that is, and then the, the transition phase between the two, there has to be some transition. You don't just go to your friend and say, let me get married tomorrow. No, there's a transition phase. Whatever you call that, dating, courtship, whatever, that is a testing phase of your friendship if both of you have the character, okay, and if you are ready to take on, number one, the roles, Number two, the responsibilities of what? Of marriage. That's, that's dating. Okay? So, so my first reason, 
teenagers usually don't think of dating with a biblical perspective like that. It's usually a worldly perspective. It's usually whatever their parents did. It's usually whatever their friends do. Okay? My second reason is this. Teenagers usually don't ask the right questions regarding dating. They usually don't ask the right questions regarding dating. Um, the first question that teenagers usually ask is, is what? When can I date? That's what I asked when I was, you know, a teenager. Mom, Dad, when, when can I date? It's not that it's the wrong answer. It's just, it's just not the important um, question. Okay? And I know some of your parents give you a specific age when you can date, and I think that's very wise. Okay? But the more important question is that, that you should be asking is, uh, why do I want to? Okay, again, motives to the heart. Okay, why do I want to date? And if your motive is unwise, unbiblical, selfish, worldly, then you have no reason to date. The next question that you should be asking is, am I ready to date? So why do I want to and am I ready? Okay, based on the definition that I gave you, are you do you have the character? And are you ready to take on the roles and the responsibilities of what seems to be the next relationship that follows a friendship, biblically speaking? Can a teenager have those characters? Yes, a teenager can. Um, you know, you you will ha you would have to really know yourself. Your parents would have to really know you. Other people would have to really know you. Okay, and if your character, but if your character is still lacking godliness, humility, submissiveness to authority, sacrificial love, and all of the other characteristics that are necessary to go from this relationship to this relationship, then you are not ready to be dating. You shouldn't be dating. Okay, you look at the roles and responsibilities of a wife, right? Uh, being a helper and being submissive. You don't have that. You're not ready for this. You shouldn't be dating. You look at the roles and responsibilities of a husband: leadership, humility, shepherding, conviction. If you don't have that here, you shouldn't be dating. Okay. So before you ask your parents or or other people, you know, when can I date? Ask those two questions. Why do I want to date? Again, just because you have a want or a desire doesn't mean that you're, that you're sinning. But you need to ask the question, why do you want that? And then you need to ask the question, am I ready? Am I ready? My third reason is this. Teenagers usually don't consider the dangers of sexual sin in dating. Can God forgive you of your sexual sin as a teenager in dating? Yes. But, students, you don't want to be wearing all the scars from that the rest of your life, either. Okay, don't just say, well, I'm mature enough. Well, I'm a Christian. Well, I think I'm strong. Well, if I stumble into that, um, it's not like I'm the first one. And God forgives it. No, don't don't presume. Right? God can forgive you, but you don't want
want scars that are unnecessary, I call them. Unnecessary scars. You don't want that. You don't want to be bringing that into your marriage. So, so before you consider dating, you can't ignore all of the things that will tempt you to commit sexual sin. Okay, let's, uh, let me just uh, name them to you. Okay? The world will tempt you to commit sexual sin. Okay? The, the way the world does dating, the way the way the world portrays dating, the way the world, you know, throws it at your face, how, how dating is, that will tempt you. Number two, Satan will tempt you. Okay? If you are weak, you don't have character, you're not thinking about dating with a biblical perspective, you're asking the wrong questions, guess what? Satan loves that. And he loves making Christians fall sexually. So, the world will tempt you. Satan will tempt you. Guess what? Your own heart will tempt you. You're young. Okay, don't overestimate your maturity and don't underestimate the strength of sexual temptation. Your heart will tempt you. Think about it. As a single person, your heart is already tempting you. Right? You don't need a boyfriend or a girlfriend to be tempted by your own heart. Now you want to add a boyfriend and a girlfriend? And if you haven't been good at wrestling those temptations that come from your heart, right? You're not going to be good when you add another person. Number four, guess what? Your hormones will make it really easy for you to fall into sexual sin. And hormones are huge in the teen years. Okay? Don't ignore. I'm saying you don't ignore those things. You don't say, well, I think, I think I have a good reason to date. I think I am ready to date. But you need to make sure that you are considering the dangers of sexual sin. See, all of those sources of temptations will, will be right there. Now, can a young person um, protect himself or herself from the, those temptations? Yeah. How do you know? Character. What kind of character? Tested and proven character. Does it, does it need time, like 10 years? No, it doesn't. But you need to be seeing it. You need to be seeing it. So those are my three reasons, okay? And people have asked me, or have listened to my three reasons, and just a, a few in the past have told me, well, you know, don't you think you're being too overly careful, too overly cautious? And may maybe, you know, and I, the, the, the older I get and the, the older my kids get, I keep reminding myself, okay, once I have a teen, I need to be very careful with my view. Because once I am a dad of a teen, I'm not saying that I would waffle on my view, but I would be hopefully more soft and gentle about it. Because now I'm a dad with a teenager you know, actually, actually experiencing this parenting thing. Um, but when people say, you know, that sounds overly cautious, overly, you know, protective, um, I haven't given them this answer, but I, in my mind, I think of the book of Solomon, which is, you know, about the relationship of friendship transitioning to the relationship of marriage, Solomon and his wife, okay? You, in the book of Solomon, you see there the, 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 the dating and the engagement and then the marriage, okay? But even for Solomon, okay? 
even even though they are now farther along in the relationship, it is going to lead to marriage. Okay, even even in Solomon's case, three times Solomon says, "Do not awaken love until it is the right time." Interesting, right? For someone who's already dating, for someone who's already about to get married, his main warning three times in the book, guys, be careful. Don't arouse it. Don't awaken it until it's really time. And for a teenager, it's just hard, guys. It's just hard to really say, I think this is the time. Okay? One of your biggest mistakes, students, one of your biggest mistakes that you can make in dating is to, is to think that you can just address it on your own and not include your parents, not include your pastors, your leaders, other godly people. Do you know who the best counsel uh, that you can have for dating? People who are married. Not people who are dating. You can talk to them, but people who are married. Because that is the next step. That is the next relationship. Okay? So, don't make that mistake. Make sure you talk to your parents about it. Talk to other people who have been married and know and have wisdom and experience in that not your dad, once I have a teenager of my own, on my own, I'm sure this would really become very personal to me, and I would have to walk, walk this line very carefully and widely, um, but as of now, those are my three reasons, and if your mom and dad have a different view, uh, submit to your parents, but I hope your parents are not saying, yeah, you're ready, that's usually not the case, right? It's usually initiated by the teenager, and now mom and dad have to shepherd them through that, look at the Bible, and, and look at the principles, and then try to apply that to their own children. Um, so make sure you involve your parents. Okay, now don't go home and say, hey, Pastor Royce, that dating is evil, that dating is bad, you know, that there's no such thing as dating. It's just you go from friendship to marriage. You know, and how does that happen? We don't know. You know, don't, don't say don't say that. <laughs> okay. All right. If you, but here's my advice: if you are in an ungodly dating relationship, here's what you can tell your parents. Pastor told me that I need to leave this ungodly dating relationship. Okay. Why? Because it's ungodly. Okay. If you've fallen into sexual sin, given to sexual temptation in your dating relationship. Um, you need to get out of there because you're sinning. Okay, fourth question. I want to know how to change bad habits when I'm constantly surrounded by bad influences. I want to know how to change bad habits when I'm constantly surrounded by bad influences. Uh, if I if I'm gonna if I'm gonna answer this uh, literally. The, the question says, how do I change bad habits from bad influences? Um, that implies that this person has already been what? Influenced by the bad influences. That's why this person has bad habits, okay? 
if that's you, you need to get out of there. You need to get out of there. Okay? You need to leave. Go to 1 John chapter 2. If you are noticing, students, that your mind is already influenced, that your mouth is already influenced, that your behavior is already influenced, you need to get out of there. 1 John chapter 2. Listen up, guys. No. First John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things of nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, boast, boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. So twice, the love of the Father is not in him. And then secondly, from another angle, um, that is not from the Father, that is from the world. So if you are already being influenced, um, you, you, you need to take this to heart. Number one, uh, are, have you allowed the influence because you actually enjoy it? And according to 1 John 2, it proves that the love of the Father is not in you. You're, actu you're actually enjoying it. You don't mind be being influenced. You, you, you don't mind the bad habits. It, it's possible that because you're just like those bad influences, you're not a Christian. Okay? But if you are a Christian and you're saying, okay, I, I think I'm starting to develop bad habits. The way I think is just like how they think. The way I talk Sometimes like, oh, what did I just say? It's from them. The way I'm acting is from them. You need, you need to get out of there. Now, if you're asking, how do I protect myself from bad influences, then, then we can talk about some things that you can do. Okay? Uh, so, so, if that's what, you want me to answer that question? How do I protect myself from bad influences? Yes. Yeah, okay, well, let's, let's address that for, for a little bit. Okay, so, so um, let's say how do you protect yourself, okay, from bad in influences. First, okay, first you need, to, you need to avoid as much as you can, okay, like Ms. Julie's asking, what, what if you can't? Well, let's, let's look at some principles here. Go, go to 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2. I want to protect myself. I don't want to have bad habits, but I'm in this worldly environment, this environment that is influencing me. Second Timothy. Chapter 2. I think it's in verse 22. Flee, flee, flee. There you go. 2.22. Flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness. Okay, so we're told to run away like a fugitive. You actually get yourself out of there. Now, if you're saying, okay, it's, it's in the home. Okay, for example, when I was a firefighter, I lived in the firehouse every third day. Okay, so for 24 hours, every third day, I lived in a home, a house with a bunch of guys who were worldly. Okay, 
And there were some ways that I could flee. I could go in my bedroom, right, and study for seminary or whatever. Or I could go, I could go outside and go for a walk. Or I could go in the the weight room and lift, right. But then when when there's a call, I gotta be with them. And when it's breakfast, lunch, or dinner, I gotta be with them. When there's a meeting, I gotta be with them, right. So there's some ways that I can flee but I can't ultimately flee. I'm a firefighter, that's my job, that's how I feed the family, okay? But, but, when it comes to things that you can flee, okay, when I was in high school, my friends and I went to the mall a lot, uh, and I was being influenced with bad influences being in the mall. The things that I saw and the people that were there, right? Now, did I need to be in the mall? No. My friends and I could go somewhere else and do something else, so I could definitely flee. So it really depends on the situation, um, but I think there are some ways, even in the home or in the workplace, that you can actually flee for a little bit, like Paul's telling Timothy here. Look at uh, Ephesians 5. Okay, Ephesians, Ephesians, uh, actually go Ephesians 4. If you can't flee, or if you can flee for a little bit, but you're still there, you know, it's school, it's work. Um, Ephesians 4, verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. So, yes, you may be surrounded with, with worldly environment, but those unbelievers, don't, you don't walk like they do. You're a Christian. Verse 18, they're darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the dark, because of the hardness of their heart. They become callous, given over to themselves, to sensuality, practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. Verse 20, but you're different. You did not learn Christ in this way. Verse 22, in reference to your former manner of life, that's your old life. Okay, you lay that aside. The old self, you lay that aside. Here's what you need to do, verse 23. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So that's what you're to do. And jump down to verse, uh, chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 1. Be imitators of God. So don't imitate the bad influence, even though you can't really flee from them because it's the home, it's the school, it's the workplace. You don't, you don't walk like them. Now here in chapter 5, verse 1, you don't imitate them. Who do you imitate? Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Jump down to verse 3. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. So is there a way to be uh, in, a, in, in an environment that's worldly? but not become worldly and not have those things, you know, uh, not, not have yourself included in those things. There is a way Paul's talking about here. Look at, jump down to verse 7. Do not be partakers with them. So you can be around them, but don't, don't partake in the things that they're doing. For you were formerly past sense darkness, but now you're light of the world. Walk as children of light. Uh, uh, children of light. Uh, verse 11. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead, what do you do? Expose them. So if 
if you're at work, if you're at school, if you're at home, and you're trying to do this, okay, that's my old life, I don't walk like that, okay? That's evil, I don't imitate that, okay? I walk, I walk as a Christian, I'm wise, and I imitate God, okay? But now Paul's saying you actually have to expose those things also. Now there's a way to do that in those different places where you can't actually flee like 2 Timothy 2.20 is telling you to. Um, and that's that's another conversation, how you do that. But that but make sure that that's not your you know, your agenda with your parents or with your classmates or with your boss that you get in there and just expose them. Uh, there's a wise way and unwise way to do that. But that's how you protect. Okay? That's how you to protect yourself from bad influences, even in places, worldly environments, uh, that you actually can't flee. But even in those environments, there are some ways to flee. Okay, when I was a firefighter, I found some ways to flee. I found some ways to get a break from those influences. Questions? Follow-up questions? But students, if you just sit back and look at your mind, listen to what you're saying, look at how you're living, if you are already being influenced, you need you need to you need to get out of there. Okay? If you are playing video games and you're thinking that way, you can't like am I in video game world, you know, or am I in reality world? If you're so consumed with video games, you need to stop playing video games. If you watch binge watching all these all these garbage, right? And then you turn it off and then you talk to your friends and you're still in that mode, you know, thinking that you're a celebrity or whatever. Um, you need to stop watching those filthy things. Okay? If you're saying things and you might say, oh, I just slipped, I just slipped. Oh, really? Where did that come from? From that bad influence? You need to cut that off. So, are you being influenced? You need to flee. Are you not being influenced? Make sure you protect yourself. Make sure you protect yourself. Alright. The, the last one we'll have to save for next time. How do I stop being angry toward my siblings? Uh, here's my quick, quick, quick answer. Okay, Back in November, I know it's so long ago, right? Months ago, back in November, uh, from Proverbs, I taught um, two parts, two part message on uh, wisdom on anger, okay? So you can, thank you to Mr. James Norris. He records uh, our, our lessons and sermons and he posts them on Spotify. So if you don't, if you don't have a phone or a way to, to listen to that, ask your parents and say, mom, dad, I'm not, I'm not gonna go on social media. I'm not gonna play video, video games. I'm actually gonna listen to sermon. Oh yeah, here, you can have it. Yeah, here, my AirPods, you can use them. <laughs> Um, but you can find it on Spotify, Wisdom on Anger, two-part message, and I talk about how to control that, uh, especially when it's towards someone you love, like your siblings, okay? I think I said, you need to cool yourself, you need to calm the situation, you need to think before you speak, you need to forgive, you need to love. All from Proverbs, okay? When you are sensing that you're about to 
feel angry and get angry, whether you blow up or clam up, when you're starting to sense that toward your sibling, that's what you do. Cool yourself down, Solomon says. Calm the situation, right? Be a thermostat, not a thermometer, right? You calm it down, right? And then you need to think before you speak. If you don't think before you speak, you're going to say some mean things toward your sibling that, again, God can forgive, but will, will be scars for the rest of your life. How you treated your sibling. You need to forgive. Think about all the sins that you have committed against God, yet look at how he treats you. And this minor thing that your sibling is doing. So you need to forgive. And then you need to love your sibling. If you have siblings, you should be the number one recipient of God's love in their life. It'd be a shame that if, that if their friends love them more than you love them. Your sibling. Okay? So, all that is in those two-part uh, message from Proverbs back in the day. Okay. Thanks, guys. Again, big, big, big questions um, that you guys asked made me think. Thankful for how you guys are processing truth, applying them to your, your life. And I appreciate you guys just sharing those questions with me. Let's let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you that we can um, understand it, even though there are a lot of places that we can't fully comprehend it. But thank you for giving us the mind of Christ, for giving us the tools so that we can understand it. In places where we can't really fully 100% comprehend it, we pray that, that we would be humble. I pray that I would be humble even when we have to take on a view, a specific view. We pray that we would um, take it on with humility and charity. Thank you for what you are doing in the minds and hearts of these students, the things that they are thinking about, the things that they, that they are asking. I pray that, that you would keep pushing them not to me, but keep pushing them to your word. That's where the answers are. And I pray that they would be wise in how they apply it. And wherever it confronts, I pray that they would be humble. And wherever it encourages them, I pray that they would be thankful. Thank you for how you work in people, even in young people. That's how powerful your word is, that... It doesn't matter the age, doesn't matter the background. We can be, um, we can be shaped and molded by your word. Make us more like Jesus Christ. And uh, thank you for today in Jesus' name.